0: Romans chapter 5, 12 through 21, The Universal Impact of Adam and Jesus, Part 3. We're going to finish up these verses here. And let's read through verse 12 through 21. We have a long introduction. Then we will get to verses 18 through 21, where we will pick up from where we left off last week. It says in verse 12 of chapter 5 of Romans, Therefore, Just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift... "...is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift, by the grace of the one man Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification." For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who received abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered, that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Praise God. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord." The praise God was my ad, obviously. Now listen, peace and rest in Jesus Christ. Have we discovered that peace? Have you discovered that peace? Do you live in that peace? Do we bask in it like bathing in the warmth of the sun? Have we felt it? Have we sensed it? Because in all honesty, I don't believe that we have completely. I don't believe that we fully grasp what we have in Christ once we have it. And it's my desire that we get a little closer to that understanding of that peace today. Remember Psalm 23? You guys all know it. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in great pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. What about in the New Living Translation, the watered-down version? The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. He lets me rest in green meadows. He leads me beside peaceful streams. You know, can you picture it? You're laying there beside that peaceful stream. You hear the still waters just a little bit, and you're laying there. Maybe a a nice cool breeze in the meadow. I mean, that's the picture. But do you and I as Christians, do we live daily with these peaceful concepts? Every single day, everywhere we're at? Is this our experience as we live in this world? We're talking about peace within our souls, not peace outside. I mean, there's going to be trials. There's going to be tribulations, all of it. But do we have peace? Or is it more of an occasional peace that you and I experience? Do we just get that sense once in a while? I think of all the storms we've been having here in California over the past couple of weeks. The clouds have been hanging over, sunny Southern California, gloomy, with just glimpses of sunlight at times breaking through. And maybe this describes Many of our walks with Christ. All cloudy most days with just glimpses of sunshine sometimes. Why? Because we're always waiting for the next shoe to drop sometimes. We just get brief glimpses of sunshine breaking through. Now if that's the case, does that sound like we're laying in green meadows? Not at all. It certainly doesn't sound like we're led by peaceful streams. It seems to me that the vast majority of Christians, including myself, do not live in peace. We don't live in peace. Now, how can I make this claim? What gives me the right to make this claim? Well, we can read statistics about the state of the church all day long. We can talk about the statistics of sin, anxiety, depression, suicides, all of it, looking just like the world. And that many Christians live in constant fear of being judged for sins of the past. Constant fear of that. Or many Christians live in constant apprehension because of fear of making a mistake. They don't want to take a step of faith, whatever it might be. And see, we don't need the statistics to show us anything. Because if you've been in the church for any amount of period, any length of time, you can see it for yourselves. Just look around the church. Don't look at each other. But just think about the churches that you've been in, the churches that you've seen, the people that you've seen there. Think about your life in the church and the many Christians you've known over the years. And I bet you anything that you can count on one hand those who have stood out above others, can't you? The ones that seem to be pillars of the faith, the pillars of that church, I mean, they're always joyful, always full of passion. These Christians who are always the ones serving, the ones that always seem to have a smile on their face and seem hopeful, you know those Christians, the ones you don't like, because you're not like that. Those who always have a word of encouragement for you, and you're always drawn to them. Those who are always positive, hopeful, trusting in the Lord, just genuine about their faith and love for God. And you could tell it's not fake. And that they're not just speaking the Christian language and putting on a facade. And they are the ones that stand out. And you remember them over the years for the joy and the peace that they've always demonstrated. And what do you and I think about those people? We think they're an anomaly. We look at them and think, oh man, should I have faith like that? Could I be like that? That they are exceptional and that they are rare Christians. But guess what? They're not anomalies. They shouldn't be standing out. It's exactly how we should be. It's exactly how everybody should be. They are an example of what we should all be like of because of what we have in Christ. And so the question becomes, Why isn't everyone in the church like this? And I'm not trying to bring you down. I'm trying to lift you up and elevate your thinking because that's what the Apostle Paul is doing here. And we're going to get to that. So that's the question. Why isn't everyone in the church like this? I believe it has to do with the Scriptures we're about to look at right now. In other words, it is because many of us, including me, have not fully grasped what we have in Jesus Christ. And he's going to drill down even more here. The Apostle Paul is going to do that. Yes, we understand. We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Yes, we understand this. And we have this salvation. But we have not fully allowed it to sink into our hearts. That what? That our acts that our sins, that the things that we do that are bad and the things that we are, that we do to try to attempt to be good have nothing to do with it at all. Nothing to do with it at all. For this to take place, for us to get to this point, it can take a lifetime of effort mining all the truths that are here. And we have to concentrate on this section a lot. I mean, today we may not even be able to wrap our arms around all that is unfolding for us here. Our our efforts today may seem to yield little fruit, but you know what? They're going to plant a seed. They'll plant a seed. I love what Danny Bond said about this section. He says this, The genius of the Apostle Paul is so extreme. You take that genius and you supercharge it with the work of the Holy Spirit to the inspired level that the thoughts become Scripture, and then to come along behind all of that, to read and to think about it, this is not the kind of section that you can just grab and run with. It's not. It's not the kind of section like in Ephesians where you could talk about the full armor of God in one setting and say, Okay. I get it. I understand. I need this. I need that piece. I need this piece and that piece. And that's what it does for us. We can't just grab it and carry it out. It takes meditation. We need to understand something. That once we have Christ, we are no longer at what? Enmity with God. We're no longer at enmity with God. Yet the vast majority of Christians do not walk in this truth. We don't, including me. In many instances, we live as troubled Christians with some kind of half-freedom. We've got one foot in freedom and one foot waiting for ourselves to mess up something. Accepting Jesus as Savior, but then always waiting for something bad to happen always expecting for ourselves to slip up in sin and then living with the guilt that it trails with it. Do you not live your life like that as a Christian? I have. I do. Instead of being this so-called anomaly, we always seem to just get glimpses of the sun breaking through and then what? All the clouds come rolling back in and we get down on ourselves. Why? Why is this? One reason may be this, that way too many of us live with far too little rest. Now, I'm not talking about physical rest. I'm talking about spiritual rest. Rest in our souls. We live, you and I, so much of our lives between our own two ears, in our minds. So much of our sins, think about it, are in our private lives. Much of our sin isn't outward. It's in our minds. And you take that thought life now and you pile it up over all these years that have accumulated in your mind and because in our minds we know who we really are and we can't fool ourselves, we can fool other people on the outside, but we have a propensity to live internally in condemnation of ourselves. And we do this long after God's forgiven and forgotten all of our sins, don't we? We remember, and we remember, and we remember. I mean, Satan isn't the worst enemy all the time. Sometimes it's ourselves. And we live in constant condemnation of ourselves and not in the freedom we have in Christ. Long after God did everything for us, we walk around daily meditating on our sins sometimes. And we bury ourselves. It's almost as if we are we have one foot in the grave already with no hope, and the other trying to have hope on land, above ground. It's as if we get this coffin and we cut out holes in the bottom and holes on the side, so we walk around trying to be joyful, knowing that we're walking around in death. I mean, that's how we walk around sometimes. And we are then what? We're preoccupied with our own sins and weaknesses when they've been all done away with, which means that we are not preoccupied with Christ and His death and what He has done on the cross. And we miss out on a full-blown love relationship with Jesus and His power and His strength over sin and His strength over death. And we don't remember these things. And we do not fully embrace the fullness of His sacrifice and the beauty of His cross because we're trying to do it all on our own. Does that describe you? Does that describe the vast majority of Christians? I believe that it does because, man, it describes me. I live around, I walk around in constant fear of messing up that I'm going to do something to cause somebody else to sin, or I'm going to sin in some way where there's no hope. But man, there's hope. I already have it. I'm already an heir, and so are you in Jesus Christ. Listen, it's been said that the genius of this passage draws us up and away from ourselves, and it begins to put our focus on Adam. And then, once we have our focus on Adam, That puts our focus on Christ. That's what the Apostle Paul is trying to do here. He's trying to eliminate all of ourselves from the equation. And once we understand how one man's sin affects all of us, our gaze shifts. Our attention shifts over to Jesus, to Christ. And then what does that do? It thrusts us into the arms and the, and the rest of one man, Jesus Christ. It thrusts us into the arms of our loving Heavenly Father who did it all. And then it shows us this, how one man's sacrifice can change an entire people who believe in Him. It has been stated that Paul's desire here is to engage us in such a unique way to engage us with such a complex passage. Why? To keep us looking at it. To continue to mine all the truths that are in it so we can keep thinking about it and thinking about Christ and get away from ourselves. I mean, think about this. How many times do we come to church on Sunday seeking God's mercies? How many times do you come in seeking application? How is it going to impact my life? I want to receive His mercies. And rightly so, we ought to expect those things, but that should not be the primary. Because then once we leave, we live the rest of the week feeling condemned. I mean, we come and we hear and we have all this joy and we worship, but then the rest of the week we walk around with these clouds over our head, just seeing glimpses of sunshine. That's because we continue to focus mostly on ourselves and we forget what we have. And what is that we have? Sainthood. Do you know you're a saint if you have Jesus Christ? Do you know what a saint is? Listen how it's described. A person who is recognized as having an exceptional degree of holiness, likeness, or closeness to God. When there is a closeness with God, doesn't self just dissipate? You just dissipate. We stop seeking the mercies of God, and we just start seeking Him. That's it. John Flavel, in his book, Divine Conduct, he wrote this, Every man loves the mercies of God, but listen, But a saint loves the God of his mercies. Oh, so good. There's this story I heard recently of this father and his son. And his son's five years old. And the dad, man, he just had the worst work day ever. He comes home, and all he wants to do is just sit on his chair, flip it back, and relax for a couple of hours. But his five-year-old son is there. And when he gets home, his son comes running to him and says, Dad, I want to play. Let's play. Let's do something. And he knows he ought to do something. But then what he does is he says, okay, he sees a magazine on the table and he rips out a page and it's a picture of of the world. And he says, now, son, I'm going to cut this up in little pieces, I'm giving you some scotch tape, go run to your room and put it all together and then come back and we'll play. And the kid does it, he cuts it all up and he goes out and the father's thinking, oh, I have a couple of hours at least just to chill. Ten minutes later, the son comes running back and it's all taped up and the world's put together and the dad's amazed and he, son, how did you do that? And he said, dad, it was easy. You see on the backside, there's a picture of a man and I just put the, together the picture of the man and it put together the world. Now, isn't that such a great picture? You put Jesus Christ in the center and the whole your whole world comes together your whole world. See, everything in our world comes together when our mind is on Jesus Christ. If we just put together the man, Jesus Christ, our world comes together, together. And as we put together the pieces here that Paul puts together in this passage, then our entire world as Christians will come together. And it's such an important section. Yet if we continue to leave these pieces disconnected, Our world will remain in pieces. We'll continue to live a life that is unmanageable and in condemnation when we're not supposed to think that way. Thinking that even as a Christian, I must do something to please God. That I have to do something. And this section puts Jesus at the forefront to take our minds away from ourselves and on to Him. I was reminded this week of a passage about Paul's life as a pattern of salvation. Do you remember this passage? 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. He tells Timothy, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on Him for everlasting life. Now Paul stops here before he goes on to the next verse, and he reflects. He reflects, and then what does he do? He praises God. Listen to what he says in verse 17. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen he can't believe in these verses what god has done for him all the long suffering this is a man the one writing these passages here then there's no doubt in my mind that in many ways paul is writing about himself he's writing about his own conversion he's writing about all of the things that are weighing him down do you remember he was very zealous for god so he thought He went after men, women, children converting to Christianity, kicking down the doors of their homes, dragging them out to the middle of the street, stoning them to death, separating families, putting them in prison, torturing and murdering people. This is who's writing Romans about love. He led many into the wrong direction and into sin. Now, think about Paul. You don't think he lives with that deep burden every single day and carries it around with him? I believe that he did. I believe he's very, he, he knows exactly what everybody's thinking. And amazingly, he sits back and stands in awe of the grace of Jesus Christ, that Jesus could wipe all of that away from his account, all of it. And now his life is completely turned around. Turned in a way that now he has the opportunity to lead people in the right direction. And that same fervor that he spent in the wrong way, now empowered by the Holy Spirit leading everyone correctly, that's what makes the impact of this passage so engaging, is that he was the chief of sinners. And all of this is not only for him, but for us. And I stand in amazement at where the Apostle Paul has brought us to. You see what he does? He began this whole book with the many. And now it's leading down to one. He just stripped away all the arguments, every single thing. It's like sports, isn't it? Think of any sport. Hockey, baseball, football, NASCAR, whatever. Many, many groups, many teams start out at the beginning. And they all were down to one champion, one winner. And who is the champion that the Apostle Paul is taking us down to? Jesus Christ. At the beginning of any season, you have all of these teams, just a mass of teams. And through the season, there's this process of elimination. And it all comes down to just two. Then you have that reigning champion and a title that no matter how it was won, that can never be taken away. It won't be taken away. Essentially, that's what we have here and what the Apostle Paul shows us because he brings it down to the last two, Adam and Jesus Christ. That's what he's doing. You see, in chapter 1, Paul, after he says he's not ashamed of the gospel, what does he do? He drags out into the light all sins and the names. He names them graphically and explicitly, doesn't he? Read chapter one. You'll see it. You'll see all the sins laid out. And what that did is expose us to the awareness of specific sins in our lives. And he does this through chapter two, then through chapter three. And then those great verses in chapter three. But now. And then Paul goes into the grace of God. Salvation is all of grace through Jesus Christ, all the way through chapter 4. Grace through faith, and Abraham is brought in as an example. And then entering into chapter 5, we begin seeing the benefits of grace and how we stand in it. Paul then lands right here from verses 12 to verse 21, and he begins to wrangle it all together. So what's he dealt with? He's dealt with the Mosaic Law for the Jew. He's dealt with universal human guilt. We've seen all of this. And he had to deal with all of this so the reader can unplug. Now listen to this. So that we can unplug from all we thought we knew about God. We have to unplug ourselves from all we grew up believing and knowing and come to the Bible for the truth. And now here the Apostle Paul stops dealing with our sins and begins dealing with one sin and the one that caused it all. That's what he's getting down to. That's what he's drilling down to. Now imagine you and I sitting down at the table across from Paul and we're just having a conversation. And in that conversation, he says something like this. Now I want you to stop looking at your sins and your life and begin looking at Adam and his life and his one sin. Okay? And now I want you to understand that the focus here, and the focus always is not your sins, but Adam's one sin. And the reason why I want you to focus on this is because I want you to understand this, that your acts of sins are disconnected from his one sin but that his one sin is not disconnected from you. In other words, Paul wants us to focus on the act of one man that had such a significant effect on our lives. The effect of his action on my life when I wasn't even there. When I wasn't even there. So that when I can understand that, then I can understand the effects of another man. An act that Jesus Christ did for me, that my acts of sins or my good deeds, listen, are disconnected from His one deed on the cross. But His one deed, dying on the cross, is not disconnected from me once I receive Him. Got all that? This is the comparison, the contrast between the two lives. And Paul, he began, like all these sports teams, with the many and all of us, and now narrows it down to the two men to show this monumental point. And a point that, when we understand it, allows us to walk as those we consider to be an anomaly of peace a point that brings full liberation to us in our Christian lives. And we'll have more sunny days than cloudy days. And the point is this, that one man's sin affected us all when we were not even there to perform any acts of condemnation to ourselves. We weren't even there, yet we're in it. But in turn, one man's act of salvation, if accepted, affects us all in salvation when we were not even there to perform any acts of righteousness. That's the point. That's the point. Jesus has the crown and the trophy and that title that can never be taken away. And what all of this does is help us helps us stop trying to pacify our guilt in our minds with some kind of acts or good behavior because we can't do it. We just can't do it. Jesus did it already. It helps us focus on Jesus Christ and His one act that already did that. Now that is liberating. That is peaceful. What peace this should bring to each one of us if we walk in this way, if we've not understood this. Now it's been said that what we have here in these next few verses or in all of these verses is a challenge to our intellect Because we must first understand something intellectually before it can sink down into our hearts. But once it sinks into our hearts, we have received it, then it begins to become part of our lives. And that's when we can begin to come to a place in our lives when we can enjoy the truth of the gospel. That's why we have to continue to meditate on all that is here so that we can walk liberated in what Jesus Christ has done not what we have or have not done. Now, I want to take you back real quick to verse 13 for a few moments. We briefly touched on this in our current series. In verse 13, what does it tell us? It says, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Now, although we briefly touched on it, I don't think we gave it due justice because as I stated before, this verse is not the main focus of the chapter. It is the main distraction, though, and people get caught right here in this verse. Because at first glance, it makes it appear that if there was no law given, then God can't or does not hold you accountable. And that's not what it's saying. Then all kinds of distraction, uh, distracting questions come in about, you know, what if this person's never heard the gospel? And how about this person and that person? And, That is not the main point of the chapter. I like what John Murray said. He says, he's an an English Protestant minister in the 1700s, and he wrote this. Yet from Adam to Moses, death reigned even over them that had not sinned after the likeness of Adam's transgression. Over those who, unlike Adam, stood outside the pale of special revelation and did not therefore openly and willingly violate a clear and positive command of God. Paul's assumption is that this universal reign of death cannot be explained except by the transgression of an expressly revealed commandment. And since that cannot be laid to the charge of each and every member of the race, the only sin that can account for it it is the sin of Adam and the participation of all in that sin. And the concluding clause of verse 14, Adam is said to be a figure of him who was to come. It is because Adam's once act of disobedience is imputed to others whose activity, who was not personally and voluntarily engaged in its performance that is here described as a type of Christ. For as the sin of Adam was the ground for our condemnation, so the righteousness of Christ is the ground of our justification. Adam's one sin sufficed to ruin the race, but Christ's obedience conferred righteousness upon His people. Just as death reigned over those who did not sin after the similitude of Adam's transgression, in other words, we weren't there, yet it spread to us, so the apostle is chiefly interested in demonstrating that men are justified who do not act righteously, after the similitude of Jesus Christ, we weren't there. Yet Jesus says, you've been crucified with me once you accept me. I wasn't there to perform any righteous act. So my what's he's trying to do? Unplug me. Unplug me from my good deeds, my bad deeds. He's trying to say it's a separate issue. He's going to deal with that in chapter 6, our conduct. But he's trying to get us to separate ourselves from these things. So in other words, what John Murray is saying is that our works do not enter anywhere in here. Anywhere. You can't do that. What the Apostle Paul is doing is disconnecting us from any works. And why is this such a critical point that we review once again? Because I bet you you're sitting there thinking to yourself, I don't get that though. There's got to be something good that I have to do. There's got to be. And there isn't. And it's so frustrating. What a frustrating mercy that is, though. That's such a critical point, though. Think about it with me. How much of the world grows up in traditional religion that teaches works righteousness? How much of it? I mean, think about it in your job, even. If you do good, you get paid, you get promotion, right? That's the way of it. That's the way of the world, but it doesn't work that way with the Lord. And he's trying to separate those things from our thinking. I mean, name your religion. The Roman Catholic Church, Mormonism, the Jews, steeped in it from birth, embedded in their minds and hearts. I mean, you can't discount the influence of any world religion in our lives. They teach efforts that make up the largest portion of whether you make it into heaven. And you're always living with that, always, even in the Christian church, even in the Protestant church. We teach those things sometimes. And this entire section is designed to unplug us from thinking this way. Look at verse 19 for a moment. Romans 5.19 says, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. And he says many because not many will accept him. But when you do accept him, you're made righteous because it's not anything that you've done. Listen to William Newell in his commentary on Romans verse by verse. He writes this, It will never do to go about counting ourselves justified In the sense merely of having our own trespasses, those we have committed forgiven. For this would amount to accounting ourselves as innocent before we personally sinned, and to have become guilty merely because we personally sinned. Do you get that? It would have meant that before you ever sinned, you were righteous. But that's not what the Bible teaches. And then it would mean that you became a sinner after you committed your first sin but the Bible tells us we were born sinners. We're born into it. That's what he's saying right here. He goes on and he says, But this is to forget that we were all made sinners by Adam's act, not, whose, Our own. Not our own. Nor does this mean that we got a sinful nature from our first parents. By nature, we were indeed children of wrath. Paul tells us this. And David declares this. In sin did my mother conceive me. Now what is he saying here? What's William Newell saying here? He's not saying that you are held accountable for your sins of your human nature. He is saying that you are accountable for the one act that Adam performed, and that's it. You're accountable for that. You're accountable for that alone. Not all those accumulated sins, that one sin... This is what he's trying to get you to focus on. He is saying that you're accountable for the one act that Adam performed. And you and I, we must divorce any effort of our own from all of our thinking. We have to. And isn't that hard? Isn't that difficult? It's difficult to think this way. This is the issue, and it has to stand alone. And what is that? That Adam's one act caused it all the reason why we die is because of adam's one act do you think things are getting better are we progressing into righteousness where we live forever no we continue to die and that was the result yes you and i have a sinful nature that abounds if it's not treated through christ but our many sins is a separate issue That'll be dealt with in the next chapter. Oh, not looking forward to that one, huh? But that's a separate issue. He's trying to get us to look at the one. And once we can get that into our brains, then guess what we can do? We can then move to the one act of Jesus Christ. Because I wasn't there when Adam sinned, yet I'm counted in it. But I wasn't there when Jesus died on the cross. Yet be, but none of my efforts... Although, he counts me there with none of my efforts. I mean, I'm fumbling for words, it's so amazing. William Newell goes on, he says, Romans 5 does not talk of a nature of sin received by us from Adam, but of our being made guilty by his act. We were so connected with the first Adam that we did not have to wait to be born or to have a sinful nature. But when Adam, our representative, acted, guess what? We acted. That's what he said. In John Whitmer's commentary on Romans, he references another illustration in the Bible about this. A scripture that gives us another illustration of the same fact. William Newell cites the same reference, and it's found in Hebrews 7. It's about Melchizedek, about Levi and Melchizedek. Abraham, Abraham's great-grandson, Levi. Listen to this. William Newell writes, When presenting the superiority of Melchizedek's priesthood to Aaron's, the author of Hebrews argued that Levi, the head of the priestly tribe, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Adam because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. What is that saying? Levi paid tithes Abraham and he wasn't even there that's what he's saying God says of Levi who was not even born yet whose father was not born yet whose grandfather Isaac was not even born yet that Levi paid tithes through Abraham and he wasn't even there and this is the same concept once we get it once we get it guess what it's there permanently it's starting to sink into your minds and into your hearts right now. And it will be there permanently. So the entire point of this section is to show what? That a representative acted on our behalf even though we weren't there. And the act involved everyone connected with Him. And if we can understand this, it will affect our relationship with Christ permanently. All of this is because of Adam's one act, and he is a type, it says right here. He's a type or a contrast. And understanding this will help us in our understanding with Christ. Now, verses 18 and 19 tell us this in Romans 5. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Now the last time we were together, we looked at the disparities between Adam and Jesus Christ, the disparity of the consequences, the disparity of the measure, and the disparity of the inevitabilities. And now... We come to the differences, the differences of the two, the comparisons. Because in the one, I have been given a gift, if you can call it a gift, of death. What a gift. The other gave life eternally. So we understand now that God declared in the Garden of Eden, hey, you eat of what I told you not to eat, then you die. That's it. Everyone with you will die. So we have that clear. Yes, we understand this. But now this brings up some questions, doesn't it? What questions? Well, how is this fair? I didn't ask for any of this. I didn't ask even to be born. I wasn't there saying, hey, I want to be born into sin. And if I asked to be born, I certainly wouldn't ask to be born into sin. Why would this happen? In fact, you might be thinking to yourself, if I was there, I would have made a different decision. I would have made the same mistake he made. But yeah, you would. I mean, you could say, if this is true, then I can't stand Adam. I hate Adam. Don't you think that sometimes? Like, how is this fair? Man, what a jerk that guy was to do all that. But listen, doesn't God work out everything for his good? For his good. Listen, I heard someone quote Warren Wearsby on this subject. Really, really good. He says this, Skeptics sometimes ask, Was it fair for God to condemn the whole world just because of one man's obedience? The answer, of course, is that it was not only fair, it was also wise and gracious. To begin with, if God had tested each human being individually, The result would have been the same, disobedience. But even more important, by condemning the human race through one man, Adam, God was then able to save the human race through the one man, Jesus Christ. Each of us is racially united to Adam as his offspring so that his deed affects us. Now think of the fallen angels. Fallen angels cannot be saved because they're not a race. In other words, God created each, in, each angel individually, and angels don't reproduce. They do not give birth to other angels. So he goes on. He created in, angels individually. They sin individually. They are judged individually. There can be no representative to take their judgment for them and save them. But because you and I are lost in Adam, our racial head, we can be saved in Christ, the head of the new creation. Thus, God's plan is both wise and gracious and fair. And now we can sit back and say, man, I thank God for Adam because now I have the opportunity of salvation through Jesus Christ. I like this, it says, God has received more glory and man has received more blessings through Christ's sacrifice than if sin had never entered. We are better off in Christ than we ever could have been in an unfallen Adam. If Adam had never sinned, He would have enjoyed continued life on the earth in the Garden of Eden. But he had no prospect of becoming a redeemed child of God, an heir of God, or a joint heir with Jesus Christ. He had no promise of a home in heaven or of being with Christ and like Him forever. These blessings come only through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ our Lord. So thank God for Adam, because it puts it all now on Jesus Christ. So the entirety of what God is concerned about here is not with our multitude of sins necessarily. He's concerned with Adam and with Jesus Christ. So all the pressure of performance is not on me at all. It's not on you at all. Who's it on? Adam and Jesus Christ. This is an issue. Something we all have a problem with. And what is that? Forgiving ourselves. Forgiving ourselves. This is long after God's forgiven and forgotten everything. He doesn't remember. The Bible tells us He doesn't remember. Yet, what do we do? We can't forgive ourselves for all of our mistakes. And so this section gets us to look to what Jesus did in His perfect obedience. Whose perfect obedience? His perfect obedience. Why? Because we can't be perfect. We are not perfect in our obedience. just doesn't work that way. I can't attempt to work my way to heaven because there's no way to do it. Through sanctification, my obedience will get better, yes. But it won't be ever perfect, ever. But my salvation is made perfect in Christ because when I accept Him as Savior... It is as if I was there with Him. That's what the Bible tells us. I have been crucified with Christ, it tells us. It is through Christ and His one act that I have salvation. So now the deduction here in verse 20. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we have seen the disparities, the differences, now the deduction. In other words, the conclusion to all of this as Paul wraps up his entire point. So sin was already there all along, already there. In the world it just entered through adam we talked about that and so now we all might ask with the jew why even have the law well the law entered that the offense might abound what this means is that sins plural are dragged out into the light and they're labeled how would we know we are liars cheaters stealing things committing adultery committing murder how would we know these things if there's no label the law came in and told you and i what not to do you don't believe me just think of a stop sign when nobody is around and you think to yourself who are they to tell me to stop i don't want to stop i'm just going to keep going nobody's going to around nobody's going to see me you see, remember, the original rebellion of Satan is that he wanted to be like Christ. And we want to we want to be, I mean, like God, we want to be like God. We want to be in charge. What about signs that say things like, stay on the grass, stay on this path? And you think to yourself, who are you to tell me what to do? I'm going to go where I want to go. I don't care what you're going to say. What about signs on your lawns that say, you know, pick up after your dogs? And people look at those signs and they say, man, I don't care. Who are you to tell me what to do? A sign that says, do not touch wet paint or cement. What's the first thing you want to do? Touch it. Mess it up. And it's true. That's all we want to do. All the law was meant to do was to lead you into the arms of a loving Savior. All these things accumulate. and You want to do them all. And, and they all abound. Galatians 3.24 says, Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. That's what the law was to do. It was to tell us you can't do it. The law entered to reveal sins in our lives and to lead us to Christ. Again, the original rebellion of Satan is that he wanted to be like God. And because we're in that rebellion, we want to be like God and in charge. We don't want anyone telling us what to do. And we cannot control ourselves. Many times we can't control ourselves. We like sin. We like trying the thou shalt nots of life, don't we? We, we see these thou shalt not and we think, oh, I'm going to try that. Thou shalt not. I, I liked that thou shalt not. And then we try another one. And then we try another one. And, man, I like all of these. feels good. And man, it's wonderful. We like to do that, but we realize something. That as it snowballs down the hill, we can't control them. And we can't get out of them. Think about your sins, those things that are addictive, that have a hold on you. And that you just don't want anymore. doesn't have such a grip. You can't do it. You can't get out of it. But you have to come to the Lord because He can do it. So the offense abounds because the law makes us realize how much we love sin. But where sin abounds, there's good news. Grace abounds much more. You know what that word abounds means here? It means to overflow. It's a constant overflow and a constant pouring out. That grace of God where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. It just overflows and covers all that. Let me explain to you what this overflowing or abounding grace is. Listen, the nation of Israel, they're the chosen nation, aren't they? Chosen by God Himself. Blessed by God like no other nation. In fact, so much so, that God said, whoever blesses them, I will bless. Whoever curses them, I will curse. That's how much He blessed them. So, When Moses goes up to receive the Ten Commandments, what were the people doing down the hill? Somebody comes out and says, hey, you know, I got a great idea. Let's make this golden calf, and that's the gods who saved us. And then they get into this whole debauchery, this big old party. They were down celebrating other gods in complete debauchery while Moses is up there. Seeking God and the Ten Commandments, you would think they were down there just praising God and worshiping. No. They went off on their own. You see that? Then listen, throughout their history, what did they do? Turn their backs on God. Came back to God. Turn their backs on God. You ever read 1st and 2nd Kings? Chronicles? This king was good. This king was bad. This king was good. This king was bad. Over and over and over. Throughout their history, What is that? Sin abounded. Sin abounded. They accumulated so much sin that what? God had to come down Himself. And they were in sin so much, they didn't recognize Jesus Christ. And they put their Savior to death. Why? Because they wanted to be in charge. They don't want anybody telling them what to do. That's like the first sin. They wanted to be like God and in charge. They crucified Christ on the cross. They didn't only crucify Him. They tortured Him. They spit on Him. They beat Him. They mocked Him. And although, listen, their sin abounded, grew over time, what abounded much more? Grace. Why? Because even after all that, a bloody, spit-on, Jesus Christ nailed to the cross. What does He say? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. After all of that, all of their history, what does He do? Now think about all your acts of sin over a lifetime, over your whole life. If you are in Christ, guess what? Grace abounds much more. He's wiped it all clean it's gone isn't that good dudes if you have never accepted jesus as lord and savior man you can be forgiven just like that just like that of everything all of your sins just washed away with no effort of your own to become righteous they didn't do anything righteous yet jesus died on the cross still for them after all the years after all those years and you and I haven't lived as long as that nation. So if He could forgive them, He could forgive us. And listen, our personal acts of sins or efforts to appease our guilt are what? They're disconnected from the original sin and salvation through grace. And this is His entire point. The one man's sin, Adam, was performed when we weren't even there. Likewise, Jesus' one act saves us when we weren't even there. But He accounts it as if we were. It unplugs the thought that I had or have anything to do with it. This is the most freeing and liberating truth of any believer in Jesus Christ. And once we have it, man, we will have that true rest, won't we? We will truly be laying in green pastures and being led by still waters and peaceful streams resting and bathing in these truths will set us free are you resting and bathing in those truths i want to do that i hope you want to do that let's pray father you're so good and you're so kind and you're so gracious and you're so loving the bible declares it you are not a god who seeks to kill anybody you're long suffering you're patient You're kind and you desire relationship with us. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. It's just a belief in what Jesus has done for us. His blood shed for us on the cross. My salvation through that, through your grace that abounds so much more. Lord, I pray that we walk today in full freedom in the knowledge that we have just received May it now just sink down deeply into our hearts and it into our lives so that, Lord, we can walk in this freedom out of the grave. Father, into your loving arms. And we praise and thank you now. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Everybody said, Amen. God bless you. We'll have one more song.